Hello and welcome to Airborne Reborn. This is the longer form of the podcast where the team here at Asinto Intelligence Services brings you weekly deep insight into what is happening in the world of electric vertical aircraft, sustainable aviation, drones, the new space sector and autonomy. My name is Sam Chandra. I am a sustainable aviation specialist at Asinto and today we are joined by Charles Osborne who is an oracle of all knowledge for all things new aerospace. He's also our founder and CEO. In this week's discussion, we explore the recent news from electric vertical aviation companies Archer and the announcements of their maker concept aircraft and vertical aerospace and their fresh intentions to go public via Special Purpose Acquisition Company, or SPAC. To understand what these announcements really mean and more, listen on. Good morning, Charles. Good to have you on. Now, can you tell me what were your top two stories from the last seven days? Morning, Sam. We're going to stick in the electric vertical aircraft category pretty much entirely for the top stories this week. The the big ones are Archer Aviation and Vertical Aerospace, which have both broken in the last, what, 12, 24 hours. So let's dig in first to the big glitzy Hollywood style event that's just wrapped up in L.A., thrown by Archer Aviation, the uh, the company co-CEO'd and co-founded by two people who aren't engineers, who don't have a background in aviation, but have just unveiled in as, as slick a way as anyone else has at an actual in-person event, which is always nice to see in, in these strange times. Cool-looking aircraft in Maker. But first up, I want to say what these guys bring to aviation, that, that aesthetic, that eye for style, um, marketing, kind of pizzazz, if you want, the, the Hollywood influence, I think is great. I think aviation's an industry that is necessarily quite conservative, but that little bit of injection of excitement that will hopefully inspire other people to get excited about flight as, as people like you I, and, and the rest of the team here are, I, I think is great. Um, and I applaud them for that. I think the, the big surprise for me was that the vehicle was a bit small. It's a two-seater. Yep. So what was unveiled was just their certification te- test bed. It's got six tilt rotors on the front of the wing, and then I think six fixed props pr- purely for lift. Yep. But I guess I don't think they stowed, they probably just align for, for cruise flight. No room for a pilot, although there will be in the final vehicle. Let's just clarify the picture a bit here. They've unveiled something that they're not going to certify. It's a kind of pathway to a larger four-passenger piloted vehicle, which is what they're going to anticipate having in operation by 2024. I think that's a pretty punchy timeline if you've not even got a full-scale prototype of that actual architecture. But I guess let's be charitable. It's not that different to Lilium, who've been changing the size and architecture of their vehicle through the certification process. So fingers crossed they can do it. So the mission profiles they talked about... I'm not sure if they're talking about Maker, this two-seat certification sort of pathway aircraft, or the full-scale four-passenger one, but they're talking about very small missions, 20 to 40 miles. So the battery's capable of 50. So we're looking at, I think, for comparison, Joby are looking at, what, 60 to 100 miles on their vehicle. So they're looking at shorter mission profile, not using the whole charge of the battery, aiming to fast charge within 10 minutes so they can do quick turnarounds, flights that don't use more than 30% of the battery. And they reckon that'll enable them to do 40, 40 flights per day. I think this is one common feature we found with all the VTOL aircraft manufacturers. When you and I have gone through some of the, the mm. docs they're submitting, 
um, to the SEC for SPAC mergers, really high frequency. What do you, as someone that whose day job is flying passengers on what, an Airbus A320, how does 40 flights a day in an archer aviation make or something bigger sound to you? It sounds like everyone is going to be, have to be very keen to fly one of these things, not just when they want to, but all throughout the the whole day. And I thought the whole value proposition was that it was on-demand transportation. And I think some of these projections are basically assuming there's going to be a line of people waiting to fly throughout the whole day, not just in commute time. So doesn't really sound like there's a lot of fat worked into those projections at all. So. I think that's... <laughs> Something we're seeing as people come over from the ground ride-sharing industry, some of the people who've come from mm. you know, the likes of Uber Elevate and, and those businesses in California, they've been able to scale those really quickly and scale demand, and they yep. are assuming they're going to be able to do the same thing in aviation. I think there's a helicopter company I work with just up the road here at Goodwood called Elite Helicopters. They run at a big event here at the Goodwood Festival of Speed every year, what's probably the busiest heliport in, I don't know, certainly Northern Europe for about three mm. days a year over that event. They have usually, what, somewhere between, I think, six and a dozen Bell jet rangers and long rangers in. So the aircraft types are pretty much the same. Right. They're leasing them in from all the op- operators and they're doing quick turnaround 10-minute pleasure flights. So the only okay. operation I've been up close to that gets anywhere near the frequency that all these eVTOL operators are talking about. Right. And you need a lot of staff around. You need people walking around aircraft that are doing high-frequency, high-pressure turnarounds. People need a lot of chaperoning. Getting them in and out of the aircraft and buckled in takes way longer than people expect. Okay, you're not going to have bowsers full of Jet A1 around and rotors running refuels, which always make me really nervous around big crowds of people. So hopefully that's a lot safer, but you're going to have really high voltage electricity cables running close to props and people. I think the next evolution of this industry is people looking a bit more at the whole ecosystem of what's required to deliver these high frequency ops. And it's all very well having really quiet aircraft and a lot of... These guys are stressing that they're so much quieter than helicopters that people are going to be more accepting of the noise. But I know just from general aviation operations, even people that love the aircraft you're flying and think they're super cool, fly over their heads 15 times a day. They very quickly lose their enthusiasm for you. So there's a bit of a disconnect here, I think, in this whole industry of we're going to make loads of money based on these really high frequency operations. Mm. They're really quiet. They're not going to bother anyone. You do anything as often as they're talking about doing it to their investors, there's going to be some pullback. So that'll be interesting. So noise mitigation, I I guess there'll be noise abatement routes for these things operating in urban areas as there are for other aircraft. But we can get into that a bit more. Let's Mm -hmm. just a couple more points on the architecture. So cool gull wing doors. Who doesn't love a gull wing door? Nice. Um, And a nice high wing, which they emphasize. So this is something I think common to every player now except ehang you have your propellers higher than people yeah higher than people basic safety we talked about that high frequency helicopter operations as a compare and contrast the big thing there is drilling into everyone don't go near the tail rotor and what does one in every 20 people do whilst trying to get a picture of them next to the helicopter still do goes to try and walk near the tail rotor no matter how much you cone it off you literally have to stand people between them 
So we look at Ehang's 216 and even their fixed wing prototype that we talked about the other week. I don't think you will ever get that certified anywhere in the US um, or Europe because it's just too dangerous. You, you're going to have people like literally lifted into the cockpit to make sure they don't hurt themselves. It, it's just too dangerous, I think. So nice to see a, a high wing again on the Archer aircraft. And they talked about it. They talked about it as autonomous. I don't know if it'll be autonomous or ro- remotely piloted, I guess. is probably more accurate for their certification program. We'll, we'll get into that, I guess, in, in, in another chat about the difference between you know automation sure. and autonomy. But uh, on the topic of kind of oh, tools yeah. and tech, they're, they're prime radiant tool was actually quite interesting and i think Mm. we're going to dig into a bit more analysis of that as a team so that's simulating the operations of a network and where it's commercially viable and where there is the demand for it and i think that Mm. that tool for investors alone has got huge value so Mm -hmm. you invest in a company that's developed one of the top tools for simulating and potentially then managing eVTOL operations at high frequency, well, even if their aircraft doesn't end up getting certified or prove that successful, you've got some IP there that you can roll into you know, another player or recycle and extract some value from in a worst case scenario. Absolutely. And it's durable to aircraft architecture certification, all of that. Joby's acquisition of Uber Elevate, there's a reason why they would take a company with no aircraft because it's got all of those simulation tools. And that's not only the future of the EVA market, it's the future of airlines, it's the future of all aerial mobility, all the way up to intercontinental flights. When I saw that, I was just like, this is what we need to be doing in the airlines because Mm -hmm. you can extract so much more value out of uh, the network that you have. And like we discussed last week, we already have so much data on our customers. Why are we not using a tool like this to optimize our routes? I'm sure there is software out there, but this just took it up another level, perhaps quite a large part of the value prop for Archer. Yeah, agreed. And I, I think outside of aviation, most people's perception is they, they see the Prime Radiant tool or the Uber Elevate, now Joby modeling tool, and they assume that the commercial aviation world is using similar, really advanced 3D simulations where you can just tap <laughs> different parameters. And no, they're not. A lot of airlines are just are buying data back off companies like Flight Radar, the same people plane spotters are using to track things on their phone because they've got more oversight of their network operations sometimes than the airline themselves. It's, you wouldn't believe that people don't always know where their aircraft are, but it's it is the the kind of slightly scary reality aircraft operation okay so let's let's have a talk about vertical aerospace so britain my, my sort of home country so i'm a big fan of these guys and try to, to not be biased but mm. i love their aircraft i love the team they're building i love you know disclosure i've got a few friends and contacts who are increasingly involved with them so i really want to see them succeed but we guessed a few weeks ago as their jobs page suddenly went from empty to full of uh, listings for engineers and software architects and all sorts of things. So they might have had a cash injection. Mm. And then funnily enough, got a tip off, I think, what, late Wednesday night, early Thursday morning through our website, completely anonymously, to go and have a look at a company's house filing that Vertical Aerospace had made, showing that they'd issued a lot of new shares. So I, I picked that up sort of yesterday. And then this morning, one of the first things in my Twitter feed, Vertical Aerospace announcing a whole raft of investors. So they've got Microsoft's venture capital arm, M2LVC, Rolls-Royce, who we hazarded a guest the other week, 
had already been announced as a partner, might have put some cash in. Sounds like they definitely have now. Honeywell similarly announced as a supplier and then emerged as also an investor. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. People buy your stuff, invest in them. You build your own ecosystem of reciprocal revenue. Avalon Aero, interesting one. So I think they're a, an aircraft maintenance outfit who specialised in... Oh, I'm going to test my memory now. Is it BA146s? Something like that. But also a, a camo outfit as well, certificate of airworthiness management. So putting together all the pieces for an operational network as well. And then orders. So you, you can't yeah. announce the investment round without announcing some orders. <laughs> we talked last week about what on earth is an order. So these I picked out are conditional pre-orders of up to 1,000 aircraft slash $4 billion. Conditional being the operative word there. I should think there's quite a few conditions on someone shelling out $4 billion on something that's never flown, to be fair. So, yeah, they don't look like they've announced it yet. But if you go to the investor page of their website, this deal is it's another SPAC merger. So they're merging mm-hmm. with a company called Broadstone Acquisition Corporation. So they're New York Stock Exchange listed under the ticker BSN. Bravo's here in November. And the okay. guys behind that have an interesting range of backgrounds, some British kind of commercial heavyweights, but their track record is in pubs, um, pizza restaurants, commercial property, finance. They've made an awful lot of money. Hugh, Os- Hugh Osmond, Mark Jonas, Edward Hawke, so that are the guys behind Broadstone. So there's some interesting docs, again, that we've just okay. started uh, leafing through as a team that give a bit more detail. We've got cool transcripts with um, with Vertical and Broadstone talking about their, their sort of future vision. I think no surprises there that I've picked up yet, other than they reckon break-even could be achieved at 100 aircraft a year. That's so- not too bad. I was having a look at the gamma figures this morning, as you do, and about 1,600 GA aircraft globally per year are produced. So for it's a wow. bit under one month of the global current production of GA aircraft. Now, that's everything from a two-seat trainer to an Airbus A318 corporate jet because uh, it's in general aviation. So the volumes mm-hmm. aren't that great at all. And this 100 aircraft uh, a year might not sound much, but in the scheme of things, that's huge. Yeah. But I hope they can make some money out of it. Yeah, it, re- it really is huge. I think from that original 2000. 2000- 2016 Uber Elevate white paper, one of the things that really stuck in my head was that that electric vertical aircraft might take Mm -hmm. us past all-time high production levels, which peaked, I think, what, around World War II, that humans have never made as many aircraft a year as we did when we were all trying to kill each other, which is sad. And yeah, what, 1,600 GA aircraft? I guess from a sustainability point of view, you could argue that Aircraft really are utilised better than almost any other means of transport, right? There there are still things flying Mm -hmm. now that were built in the 60s. And because they're so expensive to operate, their utilisation is as high as an operator can get it. Mm -hmm. And it does make me wonder, okay, if one of these companies is going to break even at 100 aircraft a year, there's two ways of looking at it, right? One... Are they all crazy? Is it unrealistic? We'd have to see a bigger uplift in, in the aviation industry than we've seen in more than a generation. Optimistically, you could say, okay, if we can displace other kinds of ground transportation with this, manage a network effectively so people aren't that bothered, 
there's enormous opportunity here for, I don't know, let's say you make hinges that, that go in a, mm. an elevator or a rudder. The whole supply chain of aerospace components will see an enormous uplift beyond anything they've ever known if we get anywhere close to this scale of production. And we might well see then, so I don't know, certainly in the GA world, it can be really difficult to find components. Even 10 years after you've bought an aircraft, there might be a couple of suppliers who have the right certification to produce this right grade of metal that, that will get yeah. through inspections. Because every component is certified. And I think this is what people fail to understand that you can build an electric scooter out of stuff you 3d print or source from anyone as long as it's the right plastic and the tolerances are pretty low for stuff like an electric bike or an electric skateboard but in in aviation what you've had certified is what you have to make and if you want to change to that you've got to you've got to get that approved by the regulator and then you've got to find suppliers who can produce to to that exact specification. And the certifiers have to be also certified to produce certifiable parts. You can't just say, oh, Group A has run out. Oh, group B, can you like make these things to this spec? Like, yeah, sure, we can do that to exactly that spec. But you can't just do it. And even for the most highly produced aircraft today, I think it is the Airbus A320 right now, even more so than perhaps some of the smaller aircraft. You still have to ship parts from the other side of the world routinely because they just might not have that one $200,000 component when it goes kaput in stock. So doing that with a hundred aircraft production rate a year, maybe that might work because it's concentrated into a few different cities, but it is definitely going to be an eye-opening exercise for lots of these uh, people that haven't really been used to the MRO maintenance certification scene. This is where we should loop in our our co-founder, Louis Morris, for a chat on the maintenance and parts opportunity for this because that's his kind of day job with lgm aviation is he will literally sometimes be getting someone to run up to scotland to a small industrial estate to fetch a part and get it in the cargo hold of another airline's plane fly it to beijing where an aircraft is stuck on the ground earning no money but all the lease payments Mm -hmm. still being made all the crew still being paid and then get it fitted to the aircraft because it's the only place in the world you could get hold of in time that right part with all the right audit trail of paperwork and again i think people don't realize quite what goes on behind the scenes to keep airliners flying and yeah there's some really interesting stuff happening in that space with tray tables are one of the first things to be 3d printed close to airport hubs and i think with all the the tech guys who've come into the the electric vertical aircraft arena we might see some more innovation like this and Hmm. crossover with the the commercial space industry particularly in on the u.s west coast where we've seen 3d printing technologies really accelerate the way components can be manufactured it's more i think in the space industry because you can make things Hmm. in a far less wasteful way right if you've got a hollow out exotic metal parts for rocket nozzles or something like that it makes sense to 3d print them there are airlines who won't fly without a coffee pot there there are literally budget airlines that they make so much money off selling the coffee that that they won't take off unless all their coffee makers and coffee pots 
are on the plane. So it's crazy things that can keep a plane on the ground, and that costs a hell of a lot of money. So yeah, I think we might see a lot of companies spring up around centres of eVTOL aircraft operations mm. who provide some of the, the flow of parts for manufacturer maintenance. Mm. But then, so on that operational side, I wanted to talk to you about different aircraft architectures. So both the companies we've talked about today, Vertical and Archer, have half their rotors are tilt rotors, yep. right? So the, so the front props rotate so that they aid the lift props on takeoff and then rotate forward for cruise. So let's take that as topic one, tilt props. As a pilot, right. how does that make you feel? What's their kind of history like? And how is electrifying them going to make them better? Firstly, the vertical and the archer concepts, I'll call them concepts, they're almost identical in the way they look and they weren't even suing each other. It was someone else that also <laughs> had another identical, Whisk had another identical concept and the only difference between the two is that one has two less propellers than the other one. They both have V-tails. They both have these cool monocoque designs. So the first tilt rotor to really be successful was the V-22 Osprey in the military. And one of the colonels in the Air Force got done for faking the safety data because it was so dangerous. They couldn't get this thing to be safe enough to certify. Anyway, they certified it anyway. And it can't auto-rotate. So just like a helicopter can and land safely if it loses power, tilt rotors can't do that because the rotors aren't big enough. And they can't glide because they're right. too heavy, essentially. So you've got no auto-rotation with a tilt rotor at all? I'm sure you have a little bit. But if they're fixed pitch propellers so that they don't have variable mm -hmm. angle of attack on the propellers, you can't. there's nothing you can do. So yeah, I don't really think you could have mm -hmm. auto-rotate effectively, essentially, on these EVTOLs, maybe a very minimal form. And it, the tilting part of the tilt rotor is just another point mm -hmm. of failure. That's never yeah. been certified in the civilian world in any way, shape, or form. There's one effort, Bell Augusta Westland. Yeah. Yeah, the AW609. But they've been trying for 12 years, at least. Two tragic accidents, haven't they? I think two two test pilots have, yeah. have unfortunately died in the exactly. test flight program of the only civilian tilt rotor concept. But okay, so I guess one thing is if we think about propulsion, I don't know if you've ever watched the videos of the V-22 Ospreys folding themselves up like a transformer. Yeah, that's cool. You start to see just how many pipes and tubes and wires there have to be to get from the flight controls and fuel and everything else that's got to get from cockpit and fuselage out to these engines on you know, nacelles on a usually quite low profile skinny wing so you've got an awful lot of stuff going there and mm -hmm. that's where you've got a lot of stuff to go wrong in theory i guess with distributed electric propulsion there should be an awful lot less to go wrong theoretically but you do still have another mechanical joint which has got to be a, a point of failure potentially right yeah it is definitely more likely for it to succeed because it's electric and there's more redundancy but it's still never been done before. And they're doing lots of things that haven't yeah. been done before and we have to do that. But there's no basis to really understand how it can be done really safely. Yeah, I think the, the simplest way to sum it up is if I were an investor and I was assessing technological and regulatory risk 
a tilt rotor architecture for me would give a much higher score on both of those than something like the whisk cora which i believe Mm -hmm. has no tilt rotors and is entirely a series of lift props that just fold themselves in the direction of travel and then a big push prop at the back for cruise flight that i think if you'd put a pilot in it which they have they might (laughs) never get that certified but i think that architecture is probably what i would go for as the lowest risk in the short term which i think is exactly what monocopter have just unveiled right and beta as well with their alia that's what they're doing and they are the very first of all of these eVTOL companies to get any sort of manned flight certification i.e putting a test pilot in by the air force everyone else is still flying theirs around without pilots because uh, it's too dangerous or something but volocopter have as well they're multi-copter they're multi-copter the the volocity yeah they and i think they have an easa design approval don't they so they are aerospace design organization but also beta hasn't vertically taken off or landed so they're just as far as we know (laughs) (laughs) it's a conventional aircraft it's a pusher prop with some big nacelles with nothing on them adding lots of extra weight and drag anything else catch your catch your eye in these two stories sam as a as as an operator any do you think there's going to be a big impact on the other players Oh, yeah. So the press release from uh, Vertical, they're saying that a Virgin Atlantic to explore joint venture to develop a Virgin Atlantic branded short haul eVTOL network in the UK. That's quite interesting. And I suspect American Airlines is probably, I don't know if they're going to do a joint venture, but they obviously have options in Verticomers for these aircrafts. It looks like airlines are continuing to consider themselves as perhaps going going to be the operators of these aircraft yeah it's just so i think vertical have always pitched themselves as looking at the regional mobility piece so i think direct competition with lilium on that so they've always talked about flying from like bristol to london for example or london to edinburgh some of these shorter sub-regional routes interesting to see airlines sniffing around that i think yeah, it's a difficult time for airlines. I had a really interesting chat this week with an old sort of mentor and, and friend and former boss and talking about what airlines should and shouldn't be doing. And I think we talked last week about how AirAsia and leveraging mm. their big customer base. And he said, if I were an airline, why you wouldn't have invested in Zoom or other virtual collaboration tools as a hedge against your business travel never recovering? It seems crazy that you wouldn't. That's why some of your business probably permanently get in there. Uh-huh. Oh, you can't fly. Use the Virgin Atlantic video tool. I know Lufthansa's Innovation Hub have, have taken a close look at that sector. I don't know if they've they have. made any investments. To wrap this longer form of the podcast up, these two stories from Electric Vertical Aviation on Archer and, and Vertical Reminded me of another couple of things we've covered this week, which will be in the short summary. But one was a fairly a fairly robust defense of Lilium's architecture by their, mm-hmm. their um, chief technology officer, Alistair McIntosh, talking about engineers tend to go for the jugular with the high disk loading on Lilium's architecture. I think there's a lot of question marks about what the noise profile of that is going to be like and how just how much energy it requires to get that thing off the ground using that instead of the, the sort of size rotors we see on, on Archer's Maker. Mm. Or the VX, I wish Vertical Aerospace would change the name of their aircraft, the VX3, 
four. But yeah, that's well worth a read. I think they're they're emphasising that they don't envisage ever really hovering with this thing, which is great until the UTM system tells you you've got to hover because there's someone else there and they've had an unexpectedly slow turnaround. Zooming back to the Archer story, you were saying they have a 10 nautical mile reserve, right? At 150 miles an hour, that's about two and a half miles a minute. That's four minutes in reserve. How long were those passengers stuck in those helicopters before you got them out of the straps? I just don't think it's going to work. But then you have Lilium who's going to have to hover for an extra 10 minutes and they've busted their fixed reserve anyway. But there's a good point though. They're not going to be flying around fixed wing the whole time. Maybe they can hold in a holding pattern. From an energy point of view, it makes sense. It's what airlines started doing a while ago of just, what is it, idle non-thrust descents? Where, hang on a minute, we don't, we'll don't. we just effectively get up to cruising altitude and gently fall down, burning as little fuel as possible. Like Raw physics, you want to use the least amount of battery, then go up really fast. I think Elon Musk talks about this, doesn't he, when he's always going on about the electric vertical aircraft he'll yeah. never build, that you do it like Starship. You go up really quick, get high, and then just fall in a really controlled manner. It's the most energy efficient way of traversing mm-hmm. from one point to another kind of anywhere on Earth. And I think that's the model that the as battery power is kind of where it is right what we're looking at pack level 200 watt hours a kilogram realistically at present you for regional mobility need that pattern anyone who's involved in commercial aviation knows that you file a flight plan but when did you last fly your actual flight plan sir i don't think i've ever done that yeah (laughs) wow there we go i wonder how many air traffic controllers are involved in some of these electric vertical aviation startups these are all surmountable problems right and and the atc Mm -hmm. system needs to evolve beyond it's crazy that it's all push to talk voice system in 2021 that we're all using over over the kind of radio am radio (laughs) yeah it works and i think we're going to see a similar reluctance by part of the kind of infrastructure players that we see in i've seen in fintech right so in the banking world their systems Mm. running on you know cobalt code that almost no one can write or troubleshoot if it goes wrong anymore but it pretty much never goes wrong and trillions of dollars or pounds flow through it all the time so why on earth would we change it we're going to see that same reticence to change something that is phenomenally safe that there's a there are internationally agreed standards for mm-hmm. um, and that takes an awfully long time to train people to operate within eVTOL wants to push back on a lot of that at the same time but I guess in the low altitude space there's the advantage that small consumer drones and increasingly mm-hmm. commercial drones and beyond visual line of sight drones are also really pushing for that change to the way airspace is managed and operated within. So they'll ride off the wave of, of that I bit, a bit, I think, and, and it'll be a lot of the same systems that come in to enable commercial drone delivery, remote inspection, all this sort of stuff will really help push the culture of AT. Yeah, I think the drones are the saving grace for the EVA industry. They have tried many, a few times. They've even had national implementation. So for, for France, where they tried to change the entire ATC system, and they just went back because it was too hard. Mm. The drones lower safety risk, smaller incremental steps they can take, and we're lucky that we have them as the disruptors. Because if it was just up to the EV toll players, I don't think 
I don't know if the air traffic control system would ever change because yeah. there just isn't that demand. It's quite a big thing to go. People are in the sky being autonomous, flying around over congested areas. And I think the ATC will be the hardest thing to change. It will be central to all of this and it'll probably be the hardest thing to change. So put your money in some ATC companies. Yeah, and I, I, even in that, that, there are some pretty fundamental barriers, right? So our existing ATC systems are pretty bad below 500 feet, anywhere that's not dead flat because it's mm -hmm. large ground-based radar that gives them the coverage. And so if you live somewhere like I do in, in the South Downs, that's lots of small hills, you've got big areas of kind of radar shadow, which is why the controlled airspace around here, there are many reasons, but it's part of the reason that the aircraft coming into Gatwick, for example, and the private jet traffic coming into Farnborough, five, 6,000 feet, that's four and a half, five thousand above AGL, above ground level, because there's a really good radar picture of them up there and, and the people sitting yeah. in, in Nats, as it is down the road from me, in Swanage, who manage our national airspace, can see them really well. So the stuff below 500 feet, we're going to need, what, a series of ground-based beacons. We're going to need ADSB. We're going to need maybe new radar, maybe space-based ADSB, like we we see already being deployed for commercial aviation. We're going to need a whole new suite of sensors for small drones, medium and big drones, doing all their, never mind their BV loss stuff, just when they're operating near an airfield or a congested area. But certainly with passenger electric vertical aircraft operating alongside GA aircraft, here in the UK, mm -hmm. I think we're, we're only just about last year and this year were transitional years for electronic conspicuity devices like ADSB mm -hmm. to be required in in VFR and in, in visual flight rules airspace for people flying a Cessna. So it's getting there. I think EAS is pushing quite hard on that as well. But we've not even got people flying normal aircraft, light aircraft necessarily being visible at all for quite large mm -hmm. proportions of their flight. I mean, flick your transponder off and be behind a hill from the local radar. And ostensibly, even in a Cessna 172, you can be completely invisible today. Absolutely. I mean, in Australia, there's really not that much radar compared to Europe. And so you can, you're quite likely to be invisible unless you put your transponder on, you're more likely to be invisible. And one thing that's interesting about these EVA companies is that all of their business models require a huge frequency of flights, which is only possible with not only automated aircraft. Actually, you could probably make the business models work with pilots, but it's actually not going to work unless you have automated air traffic control, fully automated air traffic control. And how difficult it is to automate an aircraft, they're talking late 2020s, early 2030s. Just yeah. imagine how difficult it will be to automate a system that you can't turn off and it has to all change at the same time. Uh, and it's by definition interconnected. I think that's really not talked about enough is these business models requiring the full automation so of the air traffic yeah. control system. So a few barriers ahead, but I'm sure there's a lot of smart people in this world. They'll figure them out. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I would say big investment opportunity that the whole unmanned traffic management space you want, if you're going to, particularly if you've invested or, or you're part of one of these big pipes in a SPAC deal for someone like vertical aerospace to not have a financial interest or at the very least a good understanding of what's going on in UTM 
mm-hmm. which is a key enabler of the return on your investment potentially in in someone like vertical is a, a miss like you need to see where this is going and you probably want to be involved in shaping that whole discussion at both a technological and, and a regulatory level I think, unfortunately, what a lot of these SPAC deals do is make sure that these guys all get a really juicy return and exit their investment and leave retail investors holding the bag before any of that's a problem. But I think that's a criticism of, you know, the the SPAC model is perhaps something we'll leave for another day. Sounds like a good idea. Fascinating, Charles. Do you have any final thoughts? If you want to hear a wrap up on all the other stories from the week listen to the short version of airborne reborn where we talk a little bit about eva mobility what's been going on in japan and with ehang we've even got a it's not quite a jetpack is it like a helicopter backpack from a crazy australian and lots of other stuff on sustainable aviation and commercial space and, and drone news as well but that's a wrap for this thanks very much charles that was insightful as always please remember to listen to our short version of airborne reborn which takes us through all of the stories that we have seen this past seven days I'll see you next week see you next week Thanks for listening to Airborne Reborn. I hope you have enjoyed unpacking the world of electric vertical aviation as much as we have. For help demystifying all things in new aerospace or to find out how we can tailor bespoke intelligence solutions for you, then start your journey by visiting asinto.com. That's O-S-I-N-T-O.com. <laughs>